Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus back in on the state and outlook for the housing market, including what recent sales and migration trends are pointing to and what the rental market is telling us right now. So joining me here on the line for the conversation, I'm glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, John Wallishan, Real Estate and Lodging Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So John John, good morning. Welcome back and looking forward to our conversation today. Morning, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, John, looking forward to picking back up with what has been an ongoing conversation on the housing market. Maybe to set the stage, John, I know the housing market experienced a strong period between April and December of 2020. So, John, can you put some numbers around that for us and maybe speak to the markets, geographies that have been thriving the most? Sure. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting in, in that period of, of uh, April to December, particularly early on in 2020, once the pandemic hit, I, I think the quite logical conclusion would have been, among other things, the housing market would have suffered greatly. Uh, but a funny thing happened on, on, on the way to poor performance, and that was uh, a lot of people wanted to leave uh, dense areas. So just to put uh, a few numbers around it. Just between April 2020 and December 2020, respectively, new and existing home unit sales increased 50, 50.3% and 65.4%. Uh, in terms of price increases, um, you, you saw price increases of, uh, for new homes about, eight, uh, I'm sorry, existing homes. 7% and 14.8%. But interestingly, where you've seen the real move in home prices was not over that time period. It's been since the end of the year. So really in 2021, if you look at year to date, and these are numbers through June, existing home prices are up 18, a little over 18%. It's been a lot slower in the new home price arena, a little under 2%. We can certainly talk to what's going on there. And then year on year, you're talking about new home, uh, existing home prices up over 24% and new home prices up 6%. Uh, now, what's interesting is that what a lot of people have focused on is what's going on in terms of the unit sales market in 2021, where after a couple of strong months earlier in the year, you've seen a real tailing off in sales, particularly in the new home side. But what, you know, I, I may be jumping ahead of your questions. But what I would say is, uh, this is not, uh, in, this is not, in our view, a an impending crash and b a demand problem. But let me stop there because I know you're going to have some questions around that. John, that was very helpful context to set the stage. So thank you for that. Maybe we can now fast forward to where we are today. So summer of 2021. John, I understand that signs have been appearing that might point to a slowdown in this sales momentum that you spoke of just a few moments ago. So I'm curious, John, to hear about what you've been picking up on and why momentum might be slowing. Yeah. And so look, even though people sort of think of the housing market as one big monolith, you know, housing is one of the uh, real estate really is one of the truly local businesses. So I'd say, number one, you have to break the housing market between the existing home market and the new home market. The existing home market uh, represents roughly 90 percent of the sales out there. 
So that is really, while new home sales certainly clearly very important to the economy, new home sales really are a much bigger component. So I think a few things have contributed. Number one, the the very, very significant price increases that we've talked about. Uh, These are unprecedented uh, in terms of historical housing price increases, number one. So affordability has certainly been an issue, uh, especially for the more marginal buyer, the one whose credit may not be stellar, uh, number one. Number two, there has been a complete dearth of a supply, although it has increased somewhat from the lows. Now, you can look at supply uh, either on an actual number of homes available, and we actually in December dipped below a million for the first time since uh, since the data had been collected. We're now just a tad over a million. If you look at it on a month's of supply basis, six months is considered a normal supply. We're running at 2.6 months of supply currently for existing homes. It's getting a little bit better in the new home market. Uh, inventory has picked up particularly on the months of supply. We're a little over six months now, so that's quote-unquote normalized. But what's going on in the new home market, and we've had a chance to hear from two very large national home builders over the last two weeks, uh, the reason you're seeing new home sales slow uh, is because, it's not, again, it's not a demand problem. It is, uh, it is really the home builders that are starting to, uh, to really control sales, and they're doing that for a few reasons. Uh, number one, because they've seen the rapid increase in prices, and they are sensitive to affordability. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to properly pace sales so that they can, you know, they can manage price properly. Also, there has been you know, well-publicized issues in supply chains, uh, even though lumber prices have come in uh, substantially, and that's a positive, there's still a lot of issues, whether it's steel, whether it's cement, whether it's getting things like windows and cabinets and fixtures and things like that. Uh, so, in fact, one of the companies talked yesterday about you know th- their average cycle time, i.e. the time to build a home, has extended several weeks. And so what the companies are doing is deliberately slowing sales pace. But interestingly, the comment, the comment, excuse me, the commentary has been that they are not seeing people drop out. Concessions, i.e. what they have to give people to buy a home, continue to come down. Cancellation rates continue to come down. And so I know a lot of people like to use the word crash, bubble, they, they refer back to 2008, 2009, and while we don't want to tell you there's not going to be any distress out there, that would be foolish, this is very, very different from the period that we saw leading up to 2008, 2009. Quality of underwriting is much better. People, both uh, in terms of buyers, sellers, and lenders, being much more responsible. That's interesting, that commentary from some of these home builders that you shared with us, coupled with the data. With that in mind, from your vantage point, at the moment, could you rule out that we're at the beginnings of a housing market crash taking shape? Maybe this is more of a pause or a cooling period? What are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, I want to take that word crash right off the table. Now, obviously, you know, there's always the risk of uh, a policy mistake. And, you know, when I tend to think of, you know, when I, I get this asked, I get this question asked a lot by clients, what are you most worried about? For me, the answer is almost always policy, because at the end of the day, policy does drive uh, what goes on in business. And because housing is such not only an important part of the economy, but, you know, you know ha- everyone having a place to live 
be it a rental or an ownership, is crucially important. And so, obviously, policy differs by administration. Uh, we've heard the current administration talking about, uh, you know, how they can uh, provide more mortgage uh, credit access to maybe less qualified borrowers, putting in a fifteen thousand first time uh, first time home buyer tax credit and a number of other things. Uh, while that may be helpful, that would actually exacerbate the. Uh, <laughs> the supply problem. Uh, one of the other things that's going on here is that although the single-family home for rent market has been around for a very long time, it's become very much of an institutionalized market ever since the global financial crisis. So there has been a concern out there that these very large institutions are basically crowding out the individual individual buyer. We wrote a report on this last week, and we went into a fair amount of detail. And believe it or not, of the roughly 15 million single-family homes that are for rent, the institutions own roughly 300,000, or maybe 2% of them. Now, are they becoming a bigger factor? The answer is yes. But what we've seen recently, uh, there have been several very, very high-profile either public companies or private equity companies uh, that have announced deals to uh, – uh, to partner with home builders to actually build communities for rent. So that will actually help bring some supply onto the market. But I want to be clear that, yes, we are seeing a slowdown. Some of it is induced by uh, sticker shock in prices, but a lot of it is self-induced by a couple things. On the new home side, you've got the builders are deliberately slowing pace. And on the existing home side, and we've all read the stories in the press about, you know, multiple bids and people paying way over asking and people losing out on bids. And there is a little bit of fatigue there. So it's not unnatural in our view, to see some of that slowing. We had a frenzy, for lack of a better word, particularly in the early days of COVID. So, look, there is, to us, there's nothing better than having a steady, healthy housing market. Having this frenzy-type uh, move, even if you ask realtors or home builders, that's not good for anybody. So, frankly, to see a slowdown and having a quote-unquote more normalization, we think will be better because that will set up the market for what what will be a longer runway, if you will. And I'm look, I, again, I'm basing on the commentary that we're hearing from both public and private builders, and we have the great fortune of having a number of clients who are private builders, and it's the same story. Demand is high, and they see demand continuing. So again, short of either a policy mistake at either the federal or state level, or interest rates really running away from us, which is certainly not our call uh, at UBS, we think the housing market should remain in, pre- in pretty good shape. And just to put uh, one number around this, because I think there's a lot of people who look at the price increases and immediately say, oh, my God, affordability is completely off the charts. There's many, many ways to look at affordability, but one of the ways we look at it is looking at the median monthly payment as a percent of median household income because the vast majority of people buy home on payment, not price. So we're sitting here, and again, I'm talking median across the country. We're sitting here at roughly, call it 22.5%. If you compare that to the, pre, the, the pre-bursting of the housing bubble, we peaked at 31%. So that really shows you, despite this huge increase in prices we've had, what the benefit of this dramatic, dramatic decline in interest rates have been. If you look at the data from Freddie Mac, the, late, the, the latest results on the, on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage were 2.87%. 
those are near historic lows. So, John, that was very helpful clarity in terms of what we're seeing and why and really what these trends are indicative of. John, you mentioned a couple of risks there. So a policy mistake, great environment to be a cognizant of, uh, but also taking into account home price inflation. I'm seeing evidence of that in my own area. The ending of forbearance programs, we've spoken about that before. And post-pandemic demand, which you've highlighted throughout the course of our conversation already. These are all known risks to the integrity of the housing market. Maybe to break it out a bit further, uh, what's your take on the severity, the impact of these individual factors, John? Yeah, and, and, and I think the forbearance one is the one spending, is really worth spending a couple minutes on because I've read a lot of articles about the impending foreclosure crisis as forbearance ends. And um, uh, my colleague Leslie Falcone, who is our chief fixed income strategist, and I have written a number of reports on this. And I think this is really where facts and numbers matter. That first of all, the number of people in forbearance, and for, for anybody on the call who doesn't know what forbearance is, forbearance is not loan forgiveness. It's an ability to defer one's payments until later in the cycle. Uh, and this happened earlier, uh, this first happened under the Trump administration and has been extended under the Biden administration. Now, the forbearance programs are due to end at July 31st, which is right around the corner. So there's this immediate thought, oh, my God, the world's going to come to an end. Well, number one, I think at its peak, we've had we had roughly seven million mortgagees and there's 53 million mortgagees in the country 7 million were in forbearance programs that number is now under 2 million to start the more important part of this is 75 percent of the mortgages that are in a forbearance program are ultimately backed by a government agency be it uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the FHA, the VA and so the way they have structured those those post forbearance programs will a not require a homeowner to make up all their foreborn payments right out of the box while there are a number of solutions to quote unquote cure the forbearance one of them is to take those foreborn payments so let's take just take easy numbers your mortgage payments a thousand dollars a month and you miss a year's worth of payments instead of having to pay all that twelve thousand dollars back at one time you can as one option put that $12,000 at the end of your mortgage in what's called a non-interest-bearing silent second. In English, what that means is that $12,000 goes at the end of your mortgage. You don't pay interest on it, and that money will be due either when you pay off your mortgage or sell your house. Also recently, and we put out a blog on this the other day, the Biden administration came out with further guidance that all the uh, you know all the government agencies, particularly uh particularly the the FHA and the VA uh, and housing uh, housing and urban development have put even uh, more flexible programs in place. So we think the odds of a mass foreclosure crisis are are about as close to zero as you can get. Are there going to be some foreclosures? The answer is absolutely yes. We want to we don't want to you know be Pollyannish about this. But and while we do not want to see anybody forcibly removed from their home. Given the dearth of supply out there and the demand for homes, we think that would be very readily absorbed. And that is completely different from the situation that we were in in 2008, 2009, 
when we grossly overbuilt homes, you had, you had people who had no business buying multiple homes thinking this was shooting fish in a barrel. So the, the, world is, the, the world is just completely different and in a much better position. So uh, while we would certainly feel for anybody who was foreclosed on, we just do not think it's going to lead to the kind of crisis that we saw you know, back a decade or so ago. John, it's important to separate what contributed to 2008, 2009 versus today, different environments. So thank you for taking some time to really uh, differentiate that for us. That's helpful clarity. Maybe as we close out, we can circle back on the rental environment. You did make mention of this briefly towards the top of our conversation. What does the home price rent growth dynamic look like today, John? And as economic lifestyle impacts of the pandemic are are showing signs of receding. What might be the implications there to some of these urban markets that witnessed an exodus, so to speak, at the height of the pandemic period? Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because you know one of the things that has uh, that has evolved uh, both in the news cycle, particularly with social media, is the narrative. And and uh, what do they say? A lie will go around the world faster than the truth can put its shoes on, I believe is the quote. And maybe lie is a strong word, but we get narratives out there. And there is no argument that early on in the pandemic, particularly the coastal rental markets in the apartments, took it on the chin very, very hard. I'm talking LA, San Francisco, New York, and Boston as sort of the four markets that really got hit hard. Interestingly, last night we heard from uh, from an apartment company that is probably the most coastally exposed. And although the numbers are still negative, they have gotten so much better so quickly. And if you look at what's going on in New York in terms of how fast apartments, both rental and for sale, have been filling up, I would tell you that that narrative of, of dense cities are dead uh, is a myth. And it's not a narrative. It's a complete myth. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, in this post-pandemic world, we are going to have some people that are going to work remotely full-time, although we are believers that most people ultimately will go back to the office, and we think the post-Labor Day period is going to be really the start of that. Then we'll get into 2022. But some people will work remotely full-time, and they will migrate to maybe less expensive areas. Also, those people who have a more flexible work environment may say, look, I need more room, which is why you're starting to see more two- and three-bedroom apartments rented. You're seeing more houses rented because people are starting families. But if you look at the demographics of the country, between the ages of 18 and 34, there's, there's roughly 120, 130 million people. Now, a lot of those people are going to be renters by choice. Some are going to be renters by necessity. So we have both a very vibrant rental population. And if you think about what is the prime home buying age, it's 30 to 39, because that's when people are getting married and having children. So we think we have a very robust set of dynamics uh, that can set up for both a positive rental market 
and a positive home building market. John, I know this is a story we have been tracking since the beginning of the pandemic period, so it's very interesting to see how trends are evolving and helpful to have clarity on the current state of the housing market, the rental market, and what we're hearing from those who are boots on the ground, so to speak. So a very helpful, productive conversation this morning. John, thank you very much for your time and your insight as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thank you, John. And again, today we've been joined by John Wallishan, Real Estate and Lodging Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. Uh, These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the most recent regional view authored by John Wallachin. This came out on July 19th, U.S. Housing, Pause, Cool Down, or Crash. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topic or receive a copy of that publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 